0: Okay, I would ask that you forgive me for some selfishness today. Hopefully it's sanctified selfishness. I'm preaching this sermon because I need to hear it. Now, I know I need to hear all sermons, but I really need to hear this one. I assume there are people in this room who will need to hear it as well. It's been six years since I stood here and preached from the book of Revelation, So let's pick up that book again and turn back to chapter 21. Now, in addition to that, before somebody asks, what else is there? Two years ago in February, the day before weather or snowpocalypse, or whatever you want to call it. When we got eight, eight inches of snow in San Antonio shut down, we wrapped up the Bible doctrine study by going to the last two chapters of Revelation, and we spent two hours looking at the last two chapters of Revelation. So that's out there on, on Sermon Auto if you want to go fishing for it. But today I'm just going to be covering a small section at the end of our Bibles. And I need to state this again, since I haven't said it here in six years. Revelation is a letter. Just like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2 Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philemon. 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, etc. It's a letter, and it's written to churches. It's meant to encourage people in their present time. It's meant to lift up the souls of people who are struggling with life in the first century. They might be looking out their first century window going, What's going on? How are we going to get through this? What are we going to do? How are we going to make it? So this letter is meant to help God's people where they're at right now, be it first century or 2023. The letter is also prophetic. It does talk about things to come in the future. And it's also apocalyptic, using apocalyptic imagery to make its points. And we look at some of the imagery that's used to make its points and we scratch our head. But It is apocalyptic with the purpose of it being apocalyptic. It uses symbolism to communicate its ideas and how it's going to help people from beginning to end. And this is also the end of divine revelation in Scripture. This is the last word from God that's going to explain anything else that we have in our Bibles that has come before this. So let's read. Chapter 21, and I will start at verse 22. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. This section, if we were to go back to the beginning of chapter 21, started with John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth at the beginning of chapter 21. And I know you've heard me a million times either stand here or stand over there and talk to you about the importance of the word new. That word matters when we're reading our Bibles, it matters when it comes to the new covenant. It matters when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth. It matters when it comes to the new Jerusalem. It mattered when Jesus talked about new wineskins. The word new matters in our Bibles. And new really does mean new. Evan Jennings and I sort of have a running joke about this thing, about new meaning new. Because sometimes we can see people thinking that, well, it's new, but it's not really new, it's just sort of a mod on the old. No, new in our Bibles, in these senses, really does mean new. If you look at chapter 21, verse 5, we've got this voice from the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. That doesn't mean, behold, I am making all things a little bit different than they used to be. And I'm just touching up the old a little bit. Yesterday morning I was sitting and doing some reading for today and I came across a brief essay that really wasn't about Revelation. But the author quoted verse 5 in chapter 21. Behold, I am making all things new. I had been thinking, to use the Christian jargon, meditating on, on the passage for today and what I was going to say about it. And then that verse comes up and it just stopped me. It, it, it's like it jumped off the page at me. And I just started crying. And the tears just came. Just like that. Why? i got to believe it's because of this word, new. Behold, I am making all things new. Hebrews talks about how much better the new covenant is than the old. Not that the old was bad, but the new is so much better. How much more, to use a biblical phrase, the new heaven and the new earth. The new Jerusalem. These things we see here at the end of our Bibles in chapters 21 and 22, talking about that which is new. You want to talk about new, we've got new here in chapters 21 and 22. Chapter 21 starts off talking about the new Jerusalem. And I need to make this point right up front. The New Jerusalem is not a city made up of bricks and mortar. Read chapter 21. The New Jerusalem is God's people. It's people. Verse 2, verse 10 in chapter 21. And after John finishes writing down what he was told to write down in verse 5 about the brilliance of the city, the New Jerusalem, that's what chapter 21 is about, up to verse 21. It's not about bricks and mortar, it's about God's people. Now, he records something about the temple. Temple imagery appears throughout our Bibles. And you look back through Scripture and you see the concept of temple being manifest. What we think about immediately is Old Covenant Israel. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. The Lord said, no, but your son will. David's son did build a temple. Solomon built a temple. We know it. It was glorious. Stones, wood, and gold. But that wasn't all. David's later son and David's Lord also built a temple. A house for the Lord. Jesus Christ came and He built a temple, not made with human hands, but He built a Temple that is a spiritual temple. He built a spiritual house where God's people, for, in God's people. Remember, Scripture says in our new, new Testament, the New Covenant, God dwells in us, not just in a place of bricks and mortar. We could go back way back in our Bibles if we want to talk about Israel's in the wilderness. Where did God dwell? Where was his presence most manifest within the Holy of Holies? We could go back even further. We can go back into the Garden of Eden. And I'm going to hold that the Garden of Eden was also a form of a temple because did God dwell in the Garden of Eden? Yes, He did. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God was not out there. God was there with them in the Garden. Adam. Adam had duties just like a priest. The, when, he's told, when he's told to do what he's to do with the, with the garden, he's given the same charge, in essence, that the priests were given with regard to the temple later on. And so I'm going to hold that the temple imagery is something that is a consistent theme in our Bibles, all the way from Genesis into Revelation here. And in our passage today, we start at verse 22, John brings up the temple again. And What does he say about the temple? He says, verse 22, there is no temple in the city. But then he says, its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Well, is there a temple or is there not a temple? Which one is it? Because he says there's no temple and there is a temple. Well, he's right because he doesn't see a physical temple. I know I'm going to get into trouble here. (laughs) Anytime you preach on Revelation, you get into trouble. Okay. Uh, (laughs) That I believe these last two chapters in our Bibles when they use temple imagery here and talking about everything that's going on here in the last two chapters, these are the fulfillment of what Ezekiel wrote down for us in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel. John's a Jew. John knew what Ezekiel had prophesied about the temple in Ezekiel 40-49. through John's been waiting for the new temple. (laughs) Jews have been waiting for the new temple. They've been waiting for Haggai 2, verse 9 to happen where the Lord of hosts talked about the latter glory of this house, the house that is to come, the temple to come, shall be greater than the former. And in that place, the Lord of hosts will give peace. They've been waiting for this. And we have it finally, once and for all, here. This is the temple that John's been waiting for. This is the temple that the Jews have been waiting for. This is the temple that Scripture tells us we've been waiting for with final, eternal peace. The temple that they rebuilt after the exile didn't do this. God's people knew that. Revelation 21, Revelation 22 fulfills what we know about the temple coming. There aren't stones, wood, and gold that you see in this passage. What does the passage say? There is a temple, but the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It's what your Bible says. It's what Ezekiel and every Jew had been waiting for. We've been waiting 2,500 years for it now. And it's coming soon. And you and I are going to be there. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Maybe that's why the tears came yesterday. Behold I am making all things new. Because they're going to be so new, so different, so more glorious than we can imagine in this age. How can how can we really imagine what this is going to be like other than what we see in scripture but to make it a reality it's hard. The lamb is going to be there. The Lord God Almighty is going to be there. And so are you. And you're not going to be like this. You're going to be able to have your eyes open and see as we get to chapter 22, the face of God. Amen. Verse 23 tells us that the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Walking in the fullness of the presence of God. The fullness that in this age we cannot be in lest we die. And then when I get to this part of page 4 yesterday, when I'm writing, I started tearing up again. You may all wonder why I keep praying for people to get to the end, including myself. Brethren, if we don't get to the end, we won't see this. We'll be in the lake of fire. Just last week, Brother Jennings put a video, and I'll be honest, an essay by Conrad Merle about eight old men who did not end well. Eight old men who compromised in their old age. Brethren, help me not be number nine. I don't want to be an old man who compromises in my old age. I want to get to the end, and I want to get to the end well, and I need help. And we all need help. We all need to help each other. Yes, the Spirit helps us. But God uses means, and one of the means is we use each other to help us all to get to the end. I don't want to be number 9. The last 40 years, 41 years now, of walking with the Lord, don't matter if I don't get to the end. And however long you've walked, it doesn't matter if you don't get to the end. God help us all to get to the end. God help help us to help each other to get to the end. God God help me to get to the end. Help my brothers and sisters to get to the end. Because I want to be in this city where the gates never shut. Verse 25, this is imagery, imagery, imagery. We've got a city of people. Why do the gates never need to shut? It tells us because verse 27 tells us nothing unclean will ever enter into it. A city has gates in the wall. First off, it has a wall to protect it from the bad guys. To protect the city but you don't need this anymore here because it can't happen anymore in the New Jerusalem. We won't have a Genesis 3 with a serpent coming in and saying, did God really say? Because the serpent can't get in anymore. He's in His eternal home in the lake of fire and so are all of His demons and so are all of the rebels against God. How do we grasp all of this? A place where evil cannot enter in. Physical evil. Thought evil. Evil deeds. I don't know, but it's what it says we've got coming. (laughs) We're always going to walk in the light. We won't have John's admonition about walking in the darkness in 1 John 1 anymore. Because we're going to be so changed. Because we're going to be glorified. Our natures are going to be changed where we can't. Do what is wrong. We can't rebel anymore. And we're going to be there with the nations. Verse 24. Every tribe and language and people and nation. Go back to chapter 5. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to read chapter 5 in a minute. I hadn't planned on it. I know I don't have time, but I'm going to read it anyway. Okay? <laughs> but, but chapter 5, verse 9. He's ransomed a people. Who has? The Lamb. The Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. And He's ransomed a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And when He does that, these people who comprise the New Jerusalem, the city is so pure that no evil can enter in. You don't need to keep the bad guys out anymore. And you don't need to keep the evil out of our own hearts anymore because we will be so changed that we're incapable of that anymore. We're not. We're 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 going to be glorified. That's why Romans eight thirty matters. <laughs> those whom he foreknew, he called. Those whom he called, he pre- those, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he, he, <laughs> he predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. Even though it hasn't happened yet, Scripture says it's a done deal for God's people. For those people given to the Son by the Father. For those people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 27. When all this happens, when we see the glory of God. Verse 23. When we see the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb being our temple, we won't need to see what we see the seraphim doing in Isaiah 6. As they're there, as we have the vision of Jesus on the throne. What does Isaiah 6 said they had to do? Even the sinless angels had to cover their eyes and cover their feet. But we will have unveiled faces. And we'll be able to see him as he is. We'll be able to see him because we won't need to hide in the cleft of the rock anymore. We will be able to see him who is worthy. And we will be able to see Him who is worthy because of what He has done in His worthiness. And now I want to read Revelation 5. I've been wanting to preach on Revelation 5, but I just don't know how yet. It's, 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 so, it's so glorious and so majestic, I, do, I don't know what to say about it. I'll just read it. Chapter 1 says, He who reads this book aloud shall be blessed, and the people who hear it shall be blessed. I like being blessed by God. I like having God's people be blessed. Chapter 5, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What am I going to say now? After reading that? Glory. Glory. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb. We've got chapter 5 on only because Jesus Christ is worthy. John was in tears because nobody else was worthy. But worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we've got what we're looking at today. The last six verses of chapter 21. We've got the first five verses of chapter 22. How often do we think about that? We know Colossians tells us to think of the things that are above. And We think about heaven today. And when we die, before Jesus comes back, we will be in heaven. But that is not our home forever and ever. That's our home in this age when we die. This is our home in the age to come. Would this make a difference in our lives if we thought about this? Would this help us get through today, tomorrow, the stuff that happens in all of our lives? It, it should affect our lives. You know, when, when Scripture speaks about things on the end times, about the end and what's to come, it's, it's not designed to have us sell all of our stuff and go sit on a mountain and look up and wait for Jesus to come back on the clouds. Chapter 22, verse 11 says that the righteous are still to be doing right, and the holy are still to be holy. You've got other passages. Peter, Peter talks about in Second Peter chapter 3. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Yeah, he's talking about this here. But he also says we are to be diligent to be found at peace. Without spot or blemish in the meantime, also. Peter's been waiting for it, (laughs) just like we have. Peter's been waiting for it because he knew his scriptures. Peter was waiting for it because he knew what Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11 said. He knew that Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11 said there was going to be a day when, quote, your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. What we see here in our passage in verse 24 and 25. Peter knew it. John knew it. John knew his Hebrew Scriptures. John knew that Isaiah had written about a new heavens and a new earth in Isaiah 65. He knew that he had also written, Isaiah had written about, a place and a time when the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, just like verse 4 says, in chapter 21, where there's no more crying, nor tears, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. It mattered to these men and it ought to matter to us. Don't you get the sense that they have expectation? They're eagerly awaiting this. They want this to happen. And they're thinking it's going to happen now. It's going to happen Soon, and by soon I mean while they're there to experience it. Do we have that sense of expectation? That's my question. Do we have that same sense of expectation that, that the, the men in Scripture appear to have? Because this, this book is a book of revelation. says it right up front. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's telling us the last thing that God is going to tell us. And he's told us truth. This book is to reveal, not to hide. This book is not, not telling us new things that only certain people who can write prophetic books and have prophetic conferences can understand. This was written to seven churches. Plain old people just like us. Meant to not only be understood, but applied in their lives in the first century. So let's get back to the text. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now we see a mention of a river of the water of life, and it's flowing from a throne. It's not just flowing from any throne. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now this verse, like so much of Revelation, has Old Testament references and allusions, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S to it. It's alluding to Zechariah 14. It's alluding to Ezekiel 47. But you can go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10 speaks of a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Again, we have to keep in mind before Genesis 3, God dwelt with man. The Lord was not out there, the Lord was there. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That separation between God and man only happened after Adam and Eve eat and fell and God pronounced the curse. But that's the way it is here again at the end of your Bible. Just like before the fall. God walked with Adam and Eve fully in His presence. That's the point of what we're going to see here in chapter 22. It's a, it's a return to a greater Eden. We've got Edenic imagery here going on. Because in the first Eden, clearly man still had the ability to disobey. And man did. God, God gave man a command. Do this. And if you don't do it, there are consequences. We're not going to see this here in this part of our Bibles. Because things are different. Because things are new. This is one of the things about the newness of God making all things new. We're not going to be able to disobey anymore. That's the newness here. And this river of the water of life, bright as crystal. You know, we've, got, we've got this purity, purity imagery here going on. If it's flowing out of the throne from God and of the Lamb, clearly it has to be pure. Not 99 and 44 100% pure like ivory soap was presented back in the day, but it's 100% pure because it's coming out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And we are in the midst of all of this here. Those who are redeemed. Those who have been freed from the curse. Because no longer will there be anything accursed. Verse 3. No longer. No more. But in this river, remember, this is imagery here. Going through the middle of the street. and either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Do numbers matter in our book of Revelation? You bet they do. What does 12 signify, not just in Revelation, but elsewhere in our Scripture? It's fullness, completion, sufficiency. And it's the same thing here. This that comes out is going to be sufficient. Don't try and figure out what the twelve fruit are. (laughs) It's talking about the sufficiency of what is provided by God here. You're not going to need anything else. He's providing what His people need here. Adam and Eve didn't have access to the tree of life anymore after they fell. Genesis 3, verses 22 and 24. But do we here in this passage? Yes, we do. And we'll have it forever. The Lord sent them out of the garden so that they could not eat of the tree of life and live forever. Here, our imagery is that we are here and we have access. And we will always have access. We will be able to eat and live forever here. Whatever it looks like, But that's what makes it new because it's so different. Now, something else I want to talk about here at the end of 2. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You notice how often the Bible talks about the nations and the nations being part of God's plan. Even as we see throughout time, it came to be that that the Jews did not really, really believe in that even as much as their own Scriptures said that. Well, we see that here at the end of verse 2. The nations. People accuse Christianity of being narrow-minded, of being too exclusive. You hear it. And in response to that, I have a couple words to say. One word is whoever. Whoever believes has eternal life. I have another word. Everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sounds pretty inclusive to me. Not exclusive. Not narrow-minded. Everyone. Whoever. You go back to chapter 5 again. (laughs) Every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, not every mention of the nations is talking about God's people, but there are a lot that do. We've got this one here in verse 2. We've got it in chapter 21, verses 24 and 26. How many nations make up the people of God? How many nations make up the people of God in this room? Mexico, Dominican Republic, Cameroon, Rwanda, Nicaragua, elsewhere, Lebanon, name it, Michigan, California. People speak different languages. Everyone, whoever, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. This is talking about the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. We have the final fulfillment of the promise here of the nations. This is Abraham's inheritance. The people here. The stars in the sky, the sand on the sea, is Abraham able to count them? He is not because they're coming from the nations and they're so numerous. And Abraham had a land promise, didn't he? Now, we know under the old that the land promise was fulfilled. Joshua tells us that the land promise to Abraham was fulfilled. But then we've got Romans 4 that tells us Abraham is the heir of the world. Now, does that mean people or does it mean land? Yes. This is Abraham's inheritance here. The nations, the new heaven, the new earth where righteousness dwells. We have to think bigger here. It's new. (laughs) Hard sometimes to think about new. It's just not old people who have a problem with thinking about things new. But this is really, really new. Abraham's promise is fulfilled here in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, the new earth, in the nations being all part of this. And the curse is gone. We know that the curse was pronounced. But think about this. No more curse. Amen Amen and amen. Hallelujah, the curse is gone. All, all of these issues that we all have with each other, all of these issues you have with other people, all of these issues in the world between God's people, this disagreement, that disagreement, this gritting your teeth, and this, that, and the other thing, that's still part of the curse in this age because we're not yet perfected. We're not yet purified, even as we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and filled with the Holy Ghost we are, as the song says. But creation. Creation is cursed also. Creation groans, according to Romans, waiting for redemption. You know it. Anybody who's got a garden knows that. It's amazing how hardy weeds are, isn't it? How do weeds come up through concrete? I don't know, but they do. But the curse will be gone. Everything is cursed, even your most beautiful flowers. They're not what they were. There weren't tornadoes and hurricanes and all this sort of stuff going on before Genesis chapter three. But this passage says that's all gone. And how how do we we won't have we won't have Snowmageddon messing things up like it did or if we, if it does it's not going to mess things up like it did 2 years ago but are we waiting with expectation for the curse being gone i think about the imagery here of a child now if you celebrate birthdays with your children it doesn't take too many years and the kids know the drill they know birthdays coming They know something happens on their birthday. And they are looking forward to it. They don't know what it is. They don't know where it's coming from, but they know something good is going to happen on their birthday. Again, I use the biblical language. How much more what we see here? Are we waiting with the expectation of a child for this to come? You get the sense the scriptural writers were... And shouldn't we? Because it will affect how we deal with life too. And in addition, the child has no clue what's coming. We know what's coming. It's right here. (laughs) The sermon from two weeks ago. God's Word is truth. Trust it. Because this is going to happen for those who get to the end. And that childlike faith that Jesus talks about, how about a childlike expectation of the age to come? that we would have a childlike expectation of the age to come. Now, verse 4 and verse 3. Verse 3 ends with talking about worship. What, is, what do you mean? Well, it says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Why are they going to worship? Because verse 4 is true. They, His servants, will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. I I, I get the sense here that we will not have to be commanded to worship here. It will be spontaneous and it will be real because we will desire to worship. It will be an immediate response from our glorified hearts. Seeing the face of God, seeing that which we cannot see now, lest we die, but we will be so new that we can see it. And your passage here says something interesting in verse 4 because it says, They will see his face. Whose face? God or the Lamb? Yes. yes! That's singular. We know that God and the Lamb are distinct, but they're one. I and the Father are one, Jesus tells us in John chapter 10. And His name will be on their foreheads. We're, we're, in, we're, we're new here. We, the passage doesn't talk about the resurrection. But the resurrection has happened. 1 Corinthians 15 has happened. John 5, 28 and 29 has happened. 1 Thessalonians 4 has happened with the resurrection of the dead or the Lord bringing up those who are alive to meet Him in the air. That's happened. And now after that, this is what's going on here. Because you and I are going to do this in real bodies. That's what the resurrection is. A reuniting a body and soul. Isn't it? Yes, it is. (laughs) Jesus was the first fruit, right? If we die before He comes back, He's going to reunite our body and soul. Glorified body, glorified soul. No more arthritis. Amen. (laughs) And that's part of the newness of Him making all things new. We are going to see Him with real eyes, physical eyes. We are going to see the face of God. Now, I know God, God the Father, has no physical face because He is a spirit and is not made up of flesh and bones. So, what does it mean to see His face? We're going to see Him in His fullness when you unveil somebody's face, you see who they are. No more veil. No more limitation. The fullness of who God is, we will be able to see with our eyes, experience with our heart, and in response, worship Him and His Son, the Lamb, at the same time. Because everything else that we've talked about in Scripture leading up to the end of the age has happened here. The saints in Revelation 6 who prayed, O oh Lord, how long until You avenge our blood? Their blood has been avenged at this point because chapter 19 has already happened. The rider on the white horse has come and he's settled accounts. And now we've got life and the age to come here described for us. Because we won't have to deal with no man shall see his face and live. Life will mean seeing His face here. Because we have the river of the water of life. We have the tree of life. We have access to it now. And it's because of what this worthy Lamb has done for us and given to us as a free gift. Did not Jesus, the Lamb of God, say in the Sermon on the Mount, the pure in heart, they shall what? They shall see God. God. Okay, two more things. It says His name is going to be on our foreheads. Now be careful here. I don't believe this means that there's going to be a divine sharpie writing something on Hunter's forehead here. There's Old Testament imagery going on here. I believe that this is referring back to Exodus 28. Verses 36, 37, and 38. There's an instruction there that that a... A plate of pure gold is to have something engraved on it. Holy is the Lord. It was to be fastened on something, and it was to be fastened on the turban that Aaron was going to wear, and it was to be displayed on his forehead as he wore the turban. Aaron was a priest, right? Yeah, he was. Now we have to think about what our Bible teaches about the priesthood here. Exodus 19. This is said about Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter takes that, brings it into 1 Peter 2 where he says this about spiritual Israel, those whose hearts have been circumcised, those whom Paul calls true Jews because of that at the end of Romans 2. Peter says about Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, Peter applies that which was said about Old Covenant Israel and applies it to New Covenant Israel. He takes that which was said about physical, ethnic Israel, applies it to spiritual, true Israel, true Jews according to the Spirit who carried Paul along to write what Paul wrote at the end of Romans 2. There's more about this, though. Early in Revelation, chapter 1, verse 6, John writes that Jesus Christ has made us a kingdom, priests to His God. Chapter 5, we read it. Those who have been ransomed, the Lamb has made people from every tribe and language and people and nation a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. What does verse 5 says about they? They shall reign forever and ever. The priesthood is not limited to the tribe of Levi anymore. God's people are all priests. Scripture wants us to know that. We don't have to go through a third party to have access to the living God. We all have access to the living God because the veil in the temple is gone. And we're all priests of the order of Aaron, in a sense. And since we're all priests, he wants us to know that we have the name, his name, written on our foreheads. It's imagery, though. Okay? It's imagery. But it's true about all of God's people. Even the weak, unpresentable parts of 1 Corinthians 12 will have His name written on their foreheads. Not just certain people. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And I I believe there's also a sense here that that we have a, a really final fulfillment of the blessing that Moses gives to Aaron there in Numbers chapter 6. We sing it. Now, I'm going to read it out of the ESV. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. Will we have the Lord's countenance lifted up to us and have peace at this time? You bet. A peace that we don't have a category for yet. One more thing. Reigning forever. I already talked about the first three quarters of verse 5 when I talked about the end of chapter 21. Who is going to reign forever and ever? Scripture says they. It's the same they as in verse 4. They who will see His face. The people who are the there who will have His name on their foreheads. They will have no need of lamp or sun. Chapter, 20, chapter 21, verse 23. They will reign forever. R-E-I-G-N. What does that mean? There's a ruling there. Authority. To have authority. Remember I've said, this is a greater Eden. This is a reference going back to Eden. God told Adam that he had dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam ruled. Now, he didn't rule outside God's authority, but he ruled. There was one problem. That charge given to Adam was something that Adam could break. And he did. As one writer said, quote, God only commissioned Adam to rule, a commission he failed to fulfill. Now, in this passage here, verse 5, God promises that his people will certainly reign without end. This is not provisional, this is not conditional. It is a done deal. God's people are going to reign with God and with the Lamb here. And what does that look like? All we have is what we have here in the Scripture to tell us. But expect it. Look forward to it. Anticipate it. Jesus is coming back. Honest. He is. Anticipate it. Look forward to it. And you may think this story is crazy. We sat in a Bible study at Chippewa Correctional Facility 20-ish years ago. Ten guys. A few volunteers. One guy said, he said, I'm not ready for Jesus to come back because I want to get out and do some things with my kids. Now, before, before, before we jump him too much... There aren't very many people in this room who can identify what that guy was going through, having been separated from his family for however many years he had been separated. Was he wrong? Yes. Was there a sense of being in love with this world? Yes. Interesting thing, though, a few years later, next door at Straits Correctional, a guy in another Bible study said the exact same thing. I don't want Jesus to come back, he said, because I want to get out and do some things with my kids. Now we may we may go. Come on, but again, you got to understand. You all haven't been separated from your kids for all those years. I know one guy in this room who was separated from his kids for a while. He gets it. But in any event, are we really looking for? Do we really really want Jesus to come back? Can we say with John chapter twenty two verse twenty, "Come, Lord Jesus, now." and mean it, want it, desire it, and not be worried about taking our wife with us. We don't want our wife or our children to turn around and turn out to be Lot's wife and turn into pillars of salt. We don't want to be Lot's wife and turn around and be pillars of salt. We want to look forward to that second coming with anticipation. Eager anticipation. Knowing that what we see in our Bibles is true knowing that it's all going to be okay, and that's what John wanted to communicate to these seven churches. In the midst of all this first century stuff with Rome and whatever else is going on, it's all going to be okay because God got this under control. And trust Him. Brethren, let's trust God. Let's pray. Father, Father, that day, that day, that day, what a glorious day that will be. It's going to be glorious in two senses. Father, when you, gather, when, you, when you gather the people that You have given to Your Son, when the Bride of Christ is presented pure, when the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs, what glory there is there. But Father, it's also glorious that justice will finally be exacted upon the rebels. They will get what they deserve. Vengeance is Yours. We know that, Father. And Father, I see in in chapter 19 one of the things that, that makes us so new is that Your people will be praising You as You cast the rebels into hell because we will be praising You for Your justice because Your justice is good and perfect and holy. But Father, we've got to make it to the end. Father, help us to get to the end. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Father, we all need that help. Every day that You give us our pulse and our breath. In Christ's name, Amen.